You're listening to the Arctic Circle podcast. In this episode, we listen to a dialogue between three distinguished climate ministers. His Excellency Guðlaugur Thor Thórðarsson, Icelandic Minister for the Environment, Energy and Climate, Her Excellency Gillian Martin, Scottish Minister for Energy and the Environment, and Her Excellency Mariam Almeri, Minister of Climate Change and Environment of the United Arab Emirates. The panel took place at the 2023 Arctic Circle Assembly following the speech and dialogue with Minister Almeri and is moderated by Oliver Ragnar Grimsson, Chairman of Arctic Circle and former President of Iceland. Thank you. Well, we have now, as you have seen on the screen behind me, joined by two Ministers for Environment and Energy from Scotland and Iceland. So maybe... In order to move into the second phase of this discussion, dialogue, before I invite the hall to continue with their questions, if I can ask the two of you to react to what you have heard, uh, both from Her Excellency, the Minister here, but also from Dr. Sultan and how you view the challenge of COP, well, COP28, giving your ministerial responsibility that you have been engaged with a democratic mandate to <coughs> lead us on, on, on this journey. Then, if you start. Thank you, Oliver. I, we met this morning, and so I got a bit of advanced notice about some of the, the, the themes that was going to um, be a focus of COP28. And I'm, there's a couple of things I'm particularly impressed by because I think it's time to stop talking about targets and start talking about real concrete action a lot more in everything that we do. Most countries have got their targets already. Scotland's got very stretching targets of net zero by 2045, but a more pressing target of 75% greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Um, and one of the things that I'm impressed by is uh, the focus that has been brought into this particular COP about health and about food, because those are two areas that are so interlinked into climate change and indeed biodiversity as well. Um, in Scotland, one of the things that's in our programme for government this year is a reform of the support for agriculture. And support for agriculture um, traditionally has been about yield, and I suppose size of the of the farm that, that, that a person is applying for support for. Now what we want to do is we want to recognise where there is good, uh, sustainable um, farming happening, where there is reduction in emissions, where there is uh, uh, planting that promotes uh, sequestration of carbon, where there are parts of a, a farm given over to um, improving biodiversity, lots of things that are being done by food producers already, but actually putting a value on this in terms of support to encourage those that maybe aren't doing that to do a little bit more. And we were speaking about that this morning, and that food sustainability is just one area. And it leads to, I think, one of the things that... that um, that Scotland, I think, has been a leader as well in, in what was talked about here, is about the, the duty that we have, particularly as, as, as northern uh, regions, to share our expertise in those countries that have been affected by climate change, but also to take our responsibility for loss and damage. 
And Scotland, I hope you recognise our leader in that first, when we held uh, COP26 in Glasgow, um, our former First Minister was uh, committed to funding for loss and damage. And it's great to see that that's something that is going to be carried on in COP28, that discussion about our responsibility to help our more global south and the neighbours who have long had uh, a lot of promises made to them. Um, and uh, we're a small country. We're a small country that's got a devolved government. But if we're able to sort of signal our intention and maybe have a snowball effect with other countries uh, getting involved more in actually putting funding into helping those countries that are really facing, um, and it's not just the global south, of course, there's a lot of um, countries that are represented here that are facing um, difficulties as a result of climate change. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to have that action-based focus on, on all those areas. Wonderful. Yes, thank you. Uh, I just uh, think about that I'm here between representative of two small countries. We have 400,000, just for the record. <laughs> but uh, I think I agree that uh, I think the main thing is that we will not be judged on what we say. We will be judged on what we do. And uh, I think it's really important that uh, all the things that we are saying, that we want to do, our aims and so on, we need to put that into action. And uh, I've been thinking about this, of course, for quite quite a while. And uh, sometimes I am worried about because we know the situation, we know how we need to adapt, and we need to we need to research and have the best information and so on. But I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit worried that uh, all this negativeness, which when you are just uh, describing reality, uh, have the effect that the people they do not uh, have the hope to uh, fight and, uh, and uh, win. I think it was John Kerry who said that uh, we should look at us at the war. We were at war. Well, if you're at war, and now uh, I've been fortunate to meet uh, people I respect highly uh, for a reason, which is uh, the people of Ukraine, those people, they are going to win. They are there to win. And they know when they win, then there will be a better place to live in. And I think we should look at that at the same, uh, same, with the same view. And uh, our small country, Iceland, has also a little uh, story to tell. We were so fortunate that uh, the ones who came before us, our mothers and, and fathers and, and grandmothers and grandfathers, grandmothers and grandfathers, they saw opportunities using green energy. And there are two, we have gone through two uh, green energy transitions. Was it uh, easy? No, it's actually very difficult. Much more difficult than uh, the uh, task we are facing now. We were poor. The technology was nothing, nothing, uh, nothing compared to what we do have now. And actually, the uh, and first was uh, we were using hydro for electricity. But when we started harnessing uh, the geothermal, there was no ha uh, written handbook there because no one else was doing it. But now we built on this foundation, and this has definitely been the best decision we made by uh, in both uh, environmentally but also economically in Iceland. And I look to those people and say, you know, uh, our generation, if they could do it, then we can do it too. And I think that's the message we need to bring on, learn from each other, and uh, be aware of that, that we will be judged on what we do, and we are going to win. Thank you. So...
So now the floor is open for questions either to all of them or, or to one of them. It's up to you. So let us see uh, where the... Yes, there's one here in the middle. If you can, please stand up and get the microphone and introduce yourself. And, and if yes, all is there in the back also if you bring the microphone there. Maybe we take two questions to start with. Yes, please. And then we go back there. Thank you. I'm Mansar Rajan from the University of Surrey, Professor of International Law. My question is to Excellency for UAE. You mentioned that 70% uh, of uh, the economy does not rely upon hydrocarbons. Uh, in comparison, for example, Algeria's government depends upon hydrocarbons for 95% of its income. In the last UAE submission of nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement, they acknowledged that hydrocarbons are the largest source of the GGEs uh, for uh, the Emirates. My question is whether you can foresee a plan for phased transition out of hydrocarbons in the next submission of the UAE under the Paris Agreement. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, before you answer that, let's take a question from the, the back. Hello, my name is Michaela Stith, and I'm the Climate Justice Director for an organization called Native Movement in Alaska. I have a very similar question. His Excellency the Sultan mentioned carbon capture and sequestration, hydrogen, and net zero, each of which are considered false solutions by just transition experts and by grassroots climate leaders because they rely on continued investments in the fossil fuel industry. So I'll repeat a question asked earlier as well. Is ending fossil fuels a goal of COP28 or might it be part of the action plan you've been mentioning? Okay, you want to start? Okay, okay let me first talk about the net zero for the UAE. Um, we were actually the first um, in our region to announce a net zero by 2050. Um, we announced this in 2021. What's important here is um, the announcement basically shows that the UAE wants to hit net zero by a certain year. So 2050 is what we see with the technologies available, make, making sure it's a just transition that we're there. We actually went further. We didn't just announce a target. Last year at COP27, we announced a net zero pathway. And this pathway basically shows each of our hard-to-abate sectors, be it transportation, building, um, waste, agriculture. We looked at each of the hard-to-abate sectors and basically mapped out a pathway so that they all come to net zero by 2050. Why I'm saying this, it's important that, first of all, you have the political will, and second, you have a kind of a framework or plan where it is you want to go. Of course, 2050 is many years away, but having this ambition was important because right now, um, we are working on developing a net zero strategy. And what this is, is the how. What are the policies we need to put in place? Where does the money need to go in the different sectors so that we can accelerate this? Um, what are the projects and initiatives we need to focus on? Because as you can imagine, we're at a point here and the net zero is down here somewhere. Do we go steep in the beginning and then in the middle and then go again? Or is it a little bit constant and then steep? So the pathway is, is very important. And by the way, this exercise, I personally was involved in all these hard to abate sectors. And every month 
since the last one and a half years, we've been sitting with the different sectors, be it the finance sector, be it the insurance sector, be it the waste sector, the cement sector, and just been having really intense discussions with them on what are the bottlenecks you're facing. We need us to be on this net zero pathway. What do you need from the governments to move forward? So I'm just sharing this with you because we're actually moving ahead with this, and I hope very soon that we're going to be announcing the net zero strategy with all its programs and the policy changes that we'll be doing. Now, the NDC that the UAE just submitted a few months ago, as you all know, um, I don't know if you know, but when you are uh, when coming on board the Paris Agreement, you're actually committing that every five years you as a country need to commit to how much you're going to reduce your greenhouse gas emissions. Now, we um, did, of course, because in 2020, we announced our second NDC, but after that, we kept updating it. So just a few months ago, we updated our second NDC for the third time. And this has been happening in the last three consecutive years. Why? Again, because I myself spoke to all the different sectors where we work very closely together to say we can do more, we can do more. We're going to be convening the world. We're going to be asking the world to slash emissions because that's how we're going to save the world. We need to walk the talk and we need to make sure that we're doing whatever we can as a young country uh, to make sure that we're also putting the ambitions high enough, but of course it needs to be realistic as well. So this is why we committed to updating our NDCs and we will be working, to your question, we will be working on updating it even more and making sure that these hard-to-abate sectors do more. And of course the fossil fuel sector also has a role to play. Now I can talk about what we as a country, what we can do, yes, we have the resources and I I mean, you all know, to build solar panels, to build the wind turbines, you need energy for that. So you need to use the energy systems today to build the energy systems of tomorrow. That's what we need to focus on. And at the same time, decarbonize, decarbonize, decarbonize. So, and please remember that COP28 is a COP of so many members. Now, we cannot say... Uh, we, we as a country will have our commitments that we want to come to, and we say this is what we want to do. But the COP28 team itself needs to listen to all the countries and see what's possible as an international community. So those are my answers. I hope I've answered. Well, thank you very much for that. And uh, let me say from my own personal experience, I have had the privilege of working with the UAE now for more than 15 years. The remarkable thing uh, about that country is they actually deliver uh, on their goals and their promises. Some of us from older political systems are used to people saying all kinds of things but not necessarily delivering. I think it was 12 years ago or so I joined Dr. Sultan out in the desert where he was building the first solar power station in the UAE, the first one. It was huge in terms of screens. Now, as you described in your speech, you have some of the largest solar power uh, projects in the world. And when MASTA was established out in the desert, and I remember that well, intended to be a transformative place for energy transition, that it would, within 
10, 15 years, become the second largest global investor in renewable energy all over the world, would have been thought impossible. So I think it is tremendously important to have this oil-rich state leading the charge in renewable energy transition, like His Highness now the President of the United Arab Emirates, then the Crown Prince Sheikh Mohammed, said 10, 10 years ago, we will celebrate the last barrel of oil. That's right. And hopefully some of you here in this hall will be able to join the celebration of the last barrel of oil in, uh, in Abu Dhabi. So, let me take one final question on this subject from the hall, if there are volunteers. If not... I see a hand yeah, there. I see you are better in cheering this. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, there, yes, in the middle, yes. Thank you. Uh, Sean Pryor with the Clean Arctic Alliance. Um, it was really good to hear the message around how we've got to stop the ice melting. Uh, for us, that's really important. And we hear a lot about carbon dioxide, but not so much, I think, about black carbon and methane, which are also important in terms of global warming. Black carbon especially has a disproportionate impact on snow and ice. So my question is, uh, how can we eliminate black carbon emissions quickly? They only last in the atmosphere for a matter of days to weeks, so success mean, brings really big results really quickly. And particularly, how can we address black carbon emissions coming from the international shipping sector, which is increasing in the Arctic at this point in time? Thank you. Well... I will give you the final word, but I will ask your colleagues, the other ministers who are here, to, to also make brief comments before we close this uh, dialogue. Yeah, can, can I just say, um, and this has reference to the, uh, the previous question as well, which mentions uh, carbon capture, utilisation and storage, is that as long as there are systems in our societies that burn fossil fuels, we should be doing what we can to take that carbon out of the, the atmosphere and store it. It is not a solution. It is not a single solution. And it does not mean that you stop reducing emissions as much as possible. But there we've just pointed to, in shipping, for example, we're just, we've pointed to an area that's going to be hard to decarbonise. In Scotland, we have got industrial processes that are hard to decarbonise. Every country has. So that's where CCUS can come in until we get to a point where we have our systems which are not uh, leaching uh, greenhouse gases into the... But at the same time, the innovation needs to ramp up in terms of e-fuels. Because e-fuels are the future, and I, you know, I heard I heard yesterday that you know Iceland has a electric plane, you know, which kind of frightened me. On the one hand, it only lasts told it only lasts for thirty minutes unless it's really windy, and I thought, well, I'm not going on that plane. But the very fact that that's even happening means that it's almost like small countries probably can go first on some of the innovation. And then as it gets tested in the small countries and the small distances, then it grows and grows and grows. But until we've got that situation where we have e-fuels powering everything, where we stop burning hydrocarbons, we need to figure out a way to take that carbon out of the atmosphere. 
uh, I can assure you, uh, the plane is not going up today. Thank you. But uh, it, it's okay, and uh, both the president and the prime minister have flown in it. And uh, but I think it's a perfect example of uh, how things are developing very fast. And we are seeing because you mentioned e-fuels, which of course is something what we need. But there is also many good news. For example, that uh, we are now seeing the largest trucks we have, which can be used, uh, driven on electricity, which means that we use the uh, energy much uh, in a much better better way. So uh, there's a lot of things helping us, and we need to look at all, the, all uh, aspects, both uh, when it comes to carbon and, of course, new technology. I am still so pleased. I saw a headline the other day which uh, made me very happy. It said, forget about solar panels. Rain panels is the new thing. <laughs> That's something for us Icelanders. And, uh, but uh, regarding your question, I think I'm not maybe exactly answering it. It's just that uh, it's always the same thing. We also need to uh, get rid of uh, things that are, are really uh, harming us and we need to do it both uh, domestically and also we need international cooperation. And when we were chairing the Arctic Council, this was the main emphasis is that to get uh, uh, rid of black carbon and other things that we don't... Uh, oh, I, don't go, oh, I don't want to repeat, repeat what, you, what you said, but... Uh, we need to look at so many things. This is a huge elephant, and we need to slice it in, in bit, in little pieces. Since we are getting the sign here that we have to conclude this, I will just give you 10, 15 seconds to okay. conclude this. <laughs> we are big fans of innovations, and I'm just going to give a small story. I, of course, growing up in the UAE, berries, for example, blueberries, uh, were always tasteless. Nowadays, we're growing berries in the desert, and that's because of innovations, because we're now able to recirculate the water in a closed farm. And now the berries taste amazing. So the power of innovation is incredible. And we all know that right now, we're not, we cannot just switch off our energy from one energy to the next. Because as I said in my speech, it's not only the money that needs to come to build these new facilities, it's also the intellectual transition, the upskilling that's needed. And all this needs to happen together and in a just way. Well, thank you very much for traveling all the way from the desert in the Middle East to be with us. I might have to stay a bit longer now because and, of the wind. <laughs> thank you. I'm happy we gave you an example of the weather patterns. Thank you. Know, <laughs> And I know you're going to join a number of others in various meetings and dialogues later today and, and tomorrow. And I also want to thank your colleagues for joining us here on the stage. So let's give uh, the three climate ministers uh, thanks of applause. <laughs>